Welcome to Olim Entrepreneurship Playbook Podcast, where I deconstruct world-class Olim entrepreneurs. Today's guest is Yoel Sorrell, an Olev from Philadelphia, CEO and founder of Wadi Digital, Israel's leading digital marketing agency, specifically specializing in LinkedIn ads. In this episode, we discuss how to uncover your niche, why he loves LinkedIn and paid advertisement, the legal challenges of hiring employees in Israel, why one should be turning away clients always, why he chose to build his home and office in Pardes Hana, a creative way to establish pricing for your services, and why Aliyah is the sweetest revenge to anti-Semites. This episode is recording Yul's office in Pardes Hana. Enjoy. Just can you give me a little background to what is Wadi Digital? It's an agency that serves technology companies in Israel, predominantly. Okay. But what really makes us different is we're Anglo in the customer service. We're Anglo in the response time. We're Anglo in the empathy. We care. And that's really what it is. And it's the personality of the people that we hire and how we work that separates us from, other, from any other agency. Okay. There's a lot of... How many, how many competitors do you think there are in your space? In a lot. I mean, it does, but, it, but we're, we don't really compete. We actually have a blue ocean. We're LinkedIn agency first and foremost. Okay. So no one else really focuses on LinkedIn. 80% of B2B leads come from LinkedIn. And that's a lot. <laughs> so uh, that's our focus. Other people say, oh, we do HubSpot, we do marketing automation, and everyone pretends they're great at everything. No one is. Everyone has the thing that they're strength at. Ours is leads through LinkedIn, is B2B technology leads using the main platforms out there. LinkedIn and Google. That's our strength. We're, and that's our focus. That's how we've been able to grow. And that's how we've been able to get business. That's what separates us from everyone else. But also is on paper, that's what separates us. But if you sit across from me versus you sit across from, let's say, ahead of any of these other agencies, and many of them are great, they're good people, you'll get a different kind of listening ear. You'll get a different kind of eye contact. You get a different kind of empathy, a different kind of understanding and a better understanding of marketing and business because of my background, my uniqueness, and my approach. I'm not trying to sell snow to Eskimos. <laughs> you laugh. You'd be surprised. What do you mean? I'd be surprised? I mean, people will sell you things that you don't need. Think of this with the uh, Zohan movie, right? The, the yeah. store going out of business soon. It was called going out of business soon. Right? That, <laughs> was, that was the genius of it. Is that... Oh, here, here's something special for you. We have to, they we're pushing things to sell when it's not needed. You don't need it. You think like, it's all like smoke and mirrors to make you think you need a little bit more than you do. And the upsells and all that. And we don't. We frequently, we turn down business. Maybe 80% of our leads we turn down and we tell them to do it in-house and we'll give them some like free half hour hour training so they can do it themselves because their budgets aren't big enough. Mm-hmm. I could take their money, but my reputation will take a hit and then, the results won't be strong enough because they're not as committed to lead generation and marketing as they should be yet. So they need to taste it on their own. I can't sell them on the product. They need to sell themselves. So I give them the tools so they can learn to do it themselves, to sell themselves. And either what happens is they come back or what they do is they end up sending me a referral for other people. So it's interesting. I I know this personally because of the way we got to know each other is because those real rats send me to you to potentially use you for leads for the high in in San Francisco. And within five minutes, you totally destroyed me. I'm I'm sorry. Of like, oh, don't don't be. It was one of my favorite conversations on the phone of where where you tried to ask me a very basic question to see if you were a good fit. 
And I felt like the whole point of the conversation was to make sure that I understand that I'm not a good fit. Right. <laughs> I love that. But most people, most people that I see who are trying to sell, they're trying to make sure that you understand that they're a good fit for you. That, that's a very good point. When and you are, your whole approach was asking me why you should not work for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I yeah. love that. Right. right. No, so I mean, so we play hard to get, not as as a tactic. We play hard to get because um, we, we we work with the top technology companies, and we love that. It's a lot of fun. And in order to do that, we can't be bogged down by people that aren't a perfect fit. And then there's other fits even beyond that. Let's say basic questions, but there's a personality fit because we don't have low level juniors making minimum wage working on your accounts. You have experts. So the personalities really need to work. You're not speaking to a project manager who then gives it off to what some people call, which I think is a rude thing, but the ants, right? So, uh, they're, they're entry-level positions for them to do the work. and They're not experts on it. And then an expert or project manager, you would speak to them. So who you're speaking to isn't doing the work. So we remove that. Mm. So tell me eight years ago when you started Wadi, so around eight years ago, seven years ago? No, it was, I mean, I've been doing digital marketing since 2009. But Wadi, I really started full time about five years ago, four years ago, so four and a half, five years ago. Before that, what made were you working for a company before that? Were you, were so you I was always... doing I was doing part time. I was working for a company, but I wasn't very happy there. Let's put it mildly. Okay. So I didn't have the best boss, and um, and I was doing digital marketing mostly organic, a little bit of paid kind of on the side, very little bit, and then someone. From my MBA actually trained me for like 30, 40 shekel an hour at night, trained and I would do some Google ads work. I have the analytics and the and the numbers, you know, I have a finance background, right? It's my education. And from there I knew that this is something that I can do absolutely excellent at. Hmm. So I ran with it. And then were you always knew you were gonna start your own business? Was that something that you knew inherently? No. Or you just were you no. the type of person who just I can't work for anybody else? I had some own hours. I had some own culture. What was? No, I know. I have no problem working for someone else. I, okay. I've. It's not, and I know. I know that's rare. Uh, I know that's abnormal. Like maybe now, like I couldn't do it. But I think a lot of people tell themselves that. I mean, I used to work at Xerox in Philly, and I had the best boss. I really did. Um, I mean, and I loved it. And I was here, and I had a let's just say a not so great boss, right? So like, I can work under that great boss. It's great. I think what people look for now with millennials, Generation Z, the culture is changing because people are looking for flexibility, not work-life balance. I think that's absolutely incorrect. I think you need work-life integration is that you're always focused on your family, your personal life, and you're always focused on your work. And there are times when you're 90% in one, and 10% in the other, and the times you're 90% in one and 10% in the other. So I never, I wouldn't have had a problem with something, the company I'd like, the thing I, I can grow with, I prefer to work for smaller companies just to feel the in, to feel the impact, but this was kind of just happened. Yeah. How did how did this happen? You were working in this place which you didn't enjoy. The boss there was not a, a great that, leader, right? And then did some clients come to you that they were? They well, were I was doing work hourly for someone on the side uh-huh. who I liked, a good guy. His name's Mark. I was doing small work, like forty shekel an hour, and then I had the availability. Let's say cleared up, and so I was able to take on more hours and get better at it, and then. What actually happened was he has 10 years expertise, far more expert than me at that point, especially we're just talking predominantly Google ads right now and for the B2C. And what happened was, if I recall correctly, he, I wanted to earn more, earn more. And I brought in my own clients. We had a special structure of compensation if I brought in the clients, but I needed his expertise because he was very good. 
Um, and it got to a point where I was bringing in enough revenue that I made a proposition to be partners. And he said, no, from his perspective is that this guy's pretty new. I'm training him for under a year and he's asking to be partners and he has 10 years experience. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so, so, so we just broke off and I started bringing my own clients and I, so I started my own, that's when Wadi Digital kind of broke off mm-hmm. and started doing so. And did you see there's like a gap in the market that you realized that there's just something that, that was missing? What, I how don't, are you able to get these clients? Like, what I don't, the process? I personally do not believe a market's too saturated ever. You just need to, it's all about positioning. But for me, I knew I was good at it. I knew I'd do awesome. I, that's really what it is. I think if I went, like, you know, just, I think if I went into, if I decided to go into cultural political commentary on YouTube, I think I'll also do really well there. If I committed <laughs> myself, just crazy things, right? There's some things that I know I'm very good at. These are my callings, these are things that I can do. I mean, they just take time to build up, but I just knew I was great at it. I saw me doing well at it. So I knew, I knew I can do great work. And so I just kept growing on it and growing on it. And then I was finally going, suddenly I was able to pay the bills suddenly month to month, which is great because I wasn't <laughs> for a while. And then from there, I just kept growing and just love what I do. I love what I do because I love my work with more than anything. I love, the, I love connecting with people and clients. So t- tell me a little bit about what specifically were the skills that you had that you knew you, you could do really well in this area. It was the statistic background that you have. It was also the empathy piece. It, it's, it's, it's my strength in numbers and analytics and understanding the relationship between large data sets. And the other is I love people and I get it from both of my parents' personality. I'm a hybrid of them and I get it from both of them. Tell me a little bit about just grew up in your home. What was that like? You got something from both of them. What was it? Um, well, I'm a middle child, which already means something. It's a little off, which is probably why I made Aliyah. was really, I, I had to carve my own path. I mean, I grew up in a, like a left-wing Zionist home. So my mother's like liberal reform Zionist, and my father's Israeli Yemenite who made Yuri Da um, after the Yom Kippur War. And they got divorced when I was 14. Um, grew up in a traditional home. And uh, yeah, but they, I mean, they were always, they're very good parents, a very good father, very good mother, good sister, good brother. So um, it was just their personalities. And always my dad would always flirt, not in an inappropriate way. They just wasn't with like the cashiers at the supermarket while he'd back, you know what I mean? And make jokes like that. Yeah. And, you know, my mother was always, she's worked for a Jewish nonprofit, so was always very social, learned how to connect with people and all that. And I saw them do this and I learned it from them. And then, of course, on my own and found it interesting. So, I, you know, I pick up, you know, and, Dan Carnegie, Covey, and I start reading the books and I start implementing them. And every book, I'm not a fast reader, but I'd read small sections and I'd start implementing them. So as I'm reading Jordan Peterson's book now on 12 Rules for Life, I don't read a chapter a week. I read a section a week until I feel like here's something that I can learn, I can apply, and I stop. And then I spend the week implementing it. Let me understand a little bit about with your parents, were they your role models in terms of also the finance piece? No. Where did the numbers piece come from? Because I, like, I was just, it was just my strength. It's nature. It's nurture. Nature. You just love. All it's nature. Old. I mean, I have two daughters. They're nothing like personality. My younger daughter is just like me. My older daughter is just like my wife. Is the exact opposite. Interesting. I I think it's it's nature. I did pretty well in math. I like numbers. I uh, it's just. It's, I'm I'm very creative, but I'm not artistic. Do you know what I mean? So it's so the creativity really helps me in business, but I'm zero. I, I can't do art for shit. 
And were you at all involved in business when you were in high school or college? Was that something? That, no. You know, were you the kid who was selling candy and no. the, the cards? And the, no. Were you the one that was I was treasurer of three organizations in college. Okay. But I was not entrepreneurial. You were just the one that was making sure the entrepreneur didn't spend all the money. You well, I wasn't. Well, one was the, my biggest role as a treasurer was treasurer of my fraternity. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, we went from being in the red from the black. And that was nice. But people don't really care for these things. That's right. probably why the American... Deficit is the, the bud. I mean, the debt in America is just like, you know, left or right, people just don't care. They only care when they're in office, right. when they're in the opposition. It's, it's tragic. Look, my father's self-employed, but he didn't have an entrepreneurial spirit. He had an individualism spirit. And what did your father do? He was a painter and handyman, house painter. Painting houses. Really? So it was a very small business he didn't have employees? So he, he said he, he hired and it didn't go well. And he said he was never going to hire again. He didn't like to manage people. And he actually recently told me like a year or two ago that he regretted not growing his business and hiring people. Mm-hmm. Which has stuck with me. Because you learn more from your mistakes and other people's mistakes than you will from what you did right and other people do right. You'll learn more, let's say, from Steve Jobs, knowing that he was an absolute asshole to his employees, the people he worked with. And that's not how you should treat him more than you can of all of the great things about him as a, as a visionary and a business brand. You will. You'll learn more by studying successful people's faults, but we don't highlight failures. There's no way to really, I mean, you could also study failures, people's faults maybe be better. But in my opinion, you learn more by people's failures and mistakes than you do from their, from what they do correctly. So are you saying that way your father's experience affects you deeply about that he never grew a business? That was well, but that, he just told me that two years ago. Uh-huh. So it made me think that I want to continue as I started to succeed a couple of years ago and I didn't really have any employees. The question is, is that the, where I want to go? Do I want to, right? Do I want to, how much of a lifestyle, how much of a grow business do I want? Now there's remote teams. Uh, I'm having trouble with my personality fitting with the idea of remote teams. Many people that are independent, I managed to find that in some part with our SEO department that they're independent, they're 10 minute drive, they come in once a week. So there's, I'm learning that. I mean, I'm learning that through failure and through challenging and learning from other people's mistakes. When someone says, here's some advice, in my opinion, in general, it goes for anything. If someone says, here's what you should do, don't listen to them. It's not that they're wrong or right. It's that you can't apply what someone, you can't learn from what someone else did because you're going to have other challenges and roadblocks that, that person didn't. And that person's going to have speed bumps with the same application that you're not going to have. Circumstances are always different. But people are always going to learn to have, you know, but learning how to deal with cash flow is something that's pretty universal. Learning how to manage people or work with clients is universal. These mistakes that you can learn from them is more. So not what you should do, but rather what you shouldn't do for universal things. These are, these are things that you should be listening to. Just like they say, the best, some of the best things you can do for you in your life is go to, let's say, a nursing home and speak to old people and ask them about their regrets. There's a few things that we mentioned where you about employees, uh, one of the notions that I'm seeing a lot as I'm interviewing people is this notion of moving away from employees to contractors and right. to the gig economy. Do you have a take on that as an employer? Now, I am not one to ask questions about employing people. I don't have enough experience. I haven't been doing it well enough. I haven't fired enough people. I haven't so I wouldn't take advice from me. But what I am seeing and from my personal experience regarding the contractors is the laws and the taxes are absolutely stupid in this country. If you hire someone that doesn't work out, you need to give them 30-day notice and pay them. And all these other things you have to pay. Yeah. And it's a pain in the butt. And they make it so hard to hire and fire people 
And then if you want to go hire someone, oh, I need someone now. And usually good talent has other, other work. They're required to give 30 day notice. What do you mean? I need someone now. What do you mean 30 day notice? So I'll hire someone that's already a contractor that could take on more work. Yeah. I can't hire an employee because I only contractors are in the market that are working. If you want someone that's working and talented and fresh and stuff, you have employees who have to give 30 day notice, which is probably happening right now. There's someone who wants to hire, but she needs to give 30 day notice. We need to start July 1st, but she, it's, the whole thing is messed up. But if a contact, I can, pick, I can pick him or her up tomorrow. Okay. Tell me a little bit more around that. There is essentially, obviously in California, it's at will employment. Anyone right. can leave at any moment. Uh, here in Israel, again, the employee has to give an employer notice. This one matches the other right. round. It's 30 days. Meaning an employee has to come to work for 30 days after? Correct. Really? He can't just leave tomorrow. What's going to be the penalty? I don't know. Not a lawyer. But that's definitely, that's, that's a cultural so that you have to, okay, understand. And, and, and then essentially, so that's one of the reasons why you're, one of the barriers to hiring employees. What are some of the barriers that you have to hiring employees? And then rather than picking up contractors. I mean, I can, other than my other challenge, I don't live in the center. So most of the talent's in the center. And there are a lot of people that ask to come work for me and willing to commute, but I refuse to hire them. Why? No, I refuse to hire them. I tell them, like, I don't think I'm allowed to say I'm not going to hire you. <laughs> you know, I don't, legally, I don't think you can say I'm not going to hire someone based on their geography. But they'll come and they'll schlep and then back and forth. And eventually they're going to say, why am I having a round trip commute of two hours, three hours a day when I can find something that's 45 minute round trip in my town in Tel Aviv and Herzliya? And there, 90% of the opportunities are there, or 80% of the opportunities are there. So eventually they'll move on. So I would just say, find somewhere that's better for you. For you. So they just, it's not yeah, worth your time. It's not worth mine. Just like I'm meeting people here that just left to the center and they're dying to look for work here. So I'm trying to find local talent now. It's interesting because my, my rule is I would not hire individuals that lived called across the bridge. Similar thought process. So there's no way that I'm going to hire people that have to commute more than 40 minutes. You was, wouldn't either. I would never. I would. I, I would say people would apply from Oakland and say, "There's, an, I can hire you tomorrow, but I guarantee you, there's no way you're gonna stick around here." Right, more than years. There's also another thing is if there is a traffic jam, if there's something, it's good. The commute could take an hour and a half, two. Right, hours. something. It just by starts. the way, by one a, a car accident that's not your fault. No one gets hurt. It's enough for you to say, "F this commute. I'm sick of yeah. this. I'm gonna start looking for some closer to home." Or you get home too late to see your kids, and your spouse gives you a hard time. So, so, so you probably like you know. That brings to another question of why in Partisana. Just for people who are listening, where is Partisana? In the kind of geography from Yerushalayim, Haifa, and Tel Aviv, can you give a little bit of a... Uh, yeah, it's right off the coast near Caesarea, Chadera, Binyamina, Zichron area. It's about halfway between Netanya and Haifa. It's about 30 minutes, 35 minutes north of Netanya, 40 minutes south of Haifa. Okay, and then Tel Aviv, how far from? We're like... Without traffic, <laughs> because that's um, yeah. 50, 55 minutes. With traffic, 50, 50 minutes without traffic. I don't know with traffic. I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah, that, 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 I understand. My wife wants to tell you from bitch that. Okay, right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about why you chose Partisana. Because it's the most different place. So I, when I lived after we got married eight and a half years ago, we moved to Nahlo. All these Anglos, they were talking about Zichon, Zichon, Zichon. And I like to look, and I was looking at trends. So I don't want to see fun. One, I don't want to push a stroller up a hill ever. I didn't have any kids. It's really wet. Didn't look ideal to me. Um, and I wanted something that was 
nice. I liked the area. I need something that was up and coming. So I saw that they were planning a new train room from Tel Aviv here. And it's between on the 65 uh, next to two, four, and six highways that run north and south. And it's just north enough that you're easily accessible to the center. And I'm a quick drive to anywhere in the north. Um, and everywhere you look is green, and I'm a few minutes from the beach, and I have all the advantages of Caesarea without paying the Arnona, and they have no community there. So anyone who lives in Caesarea is supposed to drive to play golf, supposed to drive to go to the beach, supposed to drive anywhere. I just drive an extra four minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so, so you knew why you would go to Caesarea? Parishana. So Parishana. So Parishana. Uh, well, I knew I wanted to, but then we moved back to Philly for three years. And what was the reason years. I moved back to Philly? Uh, so... I was looking for work in finance and everything. And my wife and my mother-in-law lived in Jerusalem, but it was like next door to her. And my wife didn't want to leave Jerusalem area near near her mom. And we couldn't afford a car and all that. that. And we were talking to over two hours door to door. I was interviewing in Nesciona and Tel Aviv or whatever. And it was like, I couldn't do it. It was before the train days. You know, we're talking over eight years ago. So, um, yeah, so we just didn't. So we came back. And I said, we're moving back in less than three years. And every password was related, to, for everything, was related to Aliyah. So for related. you, the move to back to Philadelphia was to make money and save money? That was- so that's what I thought. And then, so that that's what I thought. And then I get there, and I'm like, I get back. I get back, and get, get no work. And so thinking to myself, how the fuck am I going to get back? So I started playing exercise myself. How much money do you need, y'all? Come on, to really go back. Like someone gave you 25 grand to make Aliyah. Would that be enough? No. 50 grand. No. 75? 100 grand. 100 grand. No. Quarter million. Probably quarter million. But as the saying goes, how do you make a small fortune in Israel? You bring a large one. So it's like you just burn through it. I have an American wife with American lifestyle. And I'm coming to Israel and everything. You earn crap. And everything costs to the nose, which is another conversation. And what was I going to do? And then I, so I really started asking, like, I understand numbers. And I, so I started writing out how much things cost, how much people earn, how I can make it happen. And then what I noticed was when I added a large sum of money, let's just say 200 grand, a quarter million dollars, I would say that means I can live for this long. But then what I did was, or I just need to increase my cash flow. And that's when I was introduced to Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and has changed my life. This understanding cash flow and the accumulation of assets is worth more than money in the bank, pension, IRAs, and IRA. Okay, open it up a little bit because that's clearly a really important statement. That, that was, and how did that affect you going back to Israel within three years? So let's say, hypothetically, we'll just speak dollars because we're speaking English. Well, let's say you're, it costs you uh, $4,000 to live a month, okay? Or $3,000, whatever, $4,000 a month. And you earn $4,000 a month. Now you're not putting anything aside. You can't do vacations. You're living paycheck to paycheck, right? If you get 50 grand, let's say, of a gift, that's one year of living, right? Four times 12 months, $48,000. It's one year of living. So you have one year of extra living. You can take a vacation for a year, right? Or you can get an extra thousand dollars breathing room a month for uh, for you know four years. So you need to start. I start think you think about the numbers about it. And then what I noticed was what I needed was instead of I can't bring that four thousand dollars of expenses down 
significantly, can work on it, get it down to 3,500 and change habits and things are ways to do that. But what I needed was to bring the $4,000 in income up permanently. If I was too young, I didn't have the skills. So I needed cash flow. So I went to the Philly ghetto and I invested in real estate. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, can you explain to me how that helped you flash flow? I bought a piece of property in my first one in West Philly for 17 grand. Uh, I took all our wedding money, which we just got money. We got everything at Bed Bath & Beyond and we returned everything for cash. Yeah. Except for our stick, except for our pots and pans. So if anyone's here this, uh, and you bought us a present, you should know that we have more registered. We just went back. <laughs> <laughs> we just cashed it all in. And, um, and my little savings that I have, I sold college debt and everything. And I... Uh, and I went and bought a house for 17 grand after looking at 100 homes. So I was working at Xerox. I'd wake up at 5 in the morning, and I would drive down to where I can afford these houses, like an MLS or like a Craigslist, all these places online, um, before even Zillow was big. It was very it was early, stage, early days of Zillow. And I'd go look at these houses, and I've looked at 100 houses. And I'm like, yo, well, you have analysis paralysis. And I do, and I always did. And then I just said, screw it, man. you got to buy a house. Next house. It's a decent enough neighborhood. It's in my budget. That's whatever. That may be a work in progress. You just got to buy one. So I bought this house for $17,000, thinking I only had to put like four or five grand in it. Turns out I didn't know any better. I had to do a whole new kitchen and everything. I, a lot had to be redone. I had to put another 17 grand in it to make a turnkey. And so I put in about 35 grand and I ended up renting it for $800 a month. And then after, after tax, you have to pay taxes, you have to pay water insurance, I was left with $550 extra a month. So we're talking over six grand, six grand a year. I just added to my cash flow. So now instead of $4,000 income, $4,000 expenses, I let's say $4,500 income, $4,000 expenses. And that $500 is never going to go away except for the month or two in between tenants where I might have to, you know, put a little money to some, change the carpets and paint, okay. which, which I'm going through actually right now. I've had those clients until now. Those tenants until now. But I've then had, you invest is thirty five thousand, so if you do get that cash flow to actually try a positive investment. See, that's why you're thinking wrong. Uh, let me let me talk about that. Yeah, yeah. what people are listening, right? Because I, I think this is all this is fascinating, by the way. This is really exactly what I want to talk about. Because uh, it's like a window, just the way it's a window in how your mind thinks, and also the, it's going to be a window in how you treat your clients, interesting way as well. So. From the way I understood is okay, you took the savings of say you know you invested thirty five thousand, so say maybe that's eighty percent of your savings. I that, it was more than hundred percent of my savings. Okay, so thirty five thousand <laughs> you just bought it, you have this right. house. The house now is creating a return investment of at the end of it is six thousand dollars a month. So that six hundred dollars. Six hundred yeah, but five fifty to six fifty. So that's say it's seven thousand dollars a mm. month of in your pocket. A year. A year, so a year. So that's seven thousand per year, it would take you around five years about to recoup your initial investments, correct? Sure. I mean, by those numbers. Okay, so how am I not seeing that correctly? What, what? Well, I just think you're looking at looking at it wrong. So okay. you're looking at it wrong like I was looking at it wrong when I made your dot. When I moved back to America, I was talking about, I was saying, I was asking myself, right? What if someone gave me 50 grand, 100 grand, a quarter million, what would it take? You see, that's the ROI way of thinking, in a way. I don't think like that. I think cash flow. So my thing is, I don't care what my ROI is. I don't care if I never make ROI. All I know is that I put down money. It was the best thing I can do with my money. And now it's putting five to 600 bucks in my pocket a month, no matter what, that includes me. That's all I cared about. 
I didn't do the math of the ROI. I knew how to do the ROI math. I financial calculus and finance education. I understood how to do it. I've read dozens of real estate books. I read bought every Robert Kiyosaki books. My whole, my whole when I moved to America, I threw out like two hundred books. The, the books I didn't throw out were my real estate books. Okay. But I mean, I also feel like emotionally connected to them. And then with that, and then they did it again. You know, then that was West Philly. Then went to North Philly. Uh, that, was, that was another funny, hilarious story. But say what's what, what's what happened? Um, I saw, so I saw a house on Craigslist. I had I had uh, ten thousand dollars in the bank, right? And uh, <clears throat> this is let's see, I my first was December two thousand and eleven, and then I rented on July first two thousand twelve, and then I bought this. I think in March 2013, like 70 months later, um, and all from the money, 500 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month. That's the thing I know. I got, like, I got several grand and I put aside a couple hundred bucks a month, 500 bucks a month working at Xerox. And um, but I couldn't find anything. You can only find shells. And so I, I was looking in the ghetto and I was looking in Craigslist, which doesn't seem like a place, smart place to buy real estate, which I agree with. Right. And I saw pictures of this place. which had a couple of pictures. I was like, oh, that place looks nice. And it was asking for $13,000. I don't know. Let me go see the place. I'm seeing the place. I was looking up real estate all the time. I love real estate. It's my first love. Not marketing. My first business was real estate. And I went to meet the guy. And he was, he was a very big, tall, strong guy with a really nice watch. He was, and he converted to Islam in prison wearing full Islamic garb. The full dress with the yarmulke and everything. Okay. I'll never forget. His name is Jubilee, and, uh, which means Yovel in Hebrew. I asked him what he knew what his name meant. He didn't know. I wasn't going to tell him. And he was showing me the place, and there was a tenant. There was a woman there with a, like a two-year-old baby, a year-and-a-half-year-old baby. And he said, yeah, she's paying $550 a month. And I'm like, this guy's lying to me. I'll have to go through it. I'm starting, you know, I'm doing the numbers. on Eviction will take me six months, and it will cost me this to go this and that. So assuming she's not paying right, because she's not paying right. And... Um, so we go through this process and back and forth. I brought in a contract to come take a look, work, and it's it's ready to rent because someone's living there. The oven's working, the bathroom's working, the toilet's flushing, everything's great. And but uh, he said he so I, he said he'd only sell to a Muslim. And I told him I was a Muslim. So I went. I incorporated. This is when I learned to incorporate. So I made an incorporation called Kala LLC. Kala means bride in Hebrew, but it has the word Allah in it. And I said, okay, Allah. He doesn't know it because the man was totally ignorant. Right. I knew more Arabic than him, and I knew like 30 words, you know, okay. at least then. Now I know more, but uh, still nothing to brag about. And I, um, and we went to closing, and I said, we're going to do a title check. And then he goes, you're Muslim, I'm Muslim. I would never take advantage of it. And I go, I know, but my Jewish real estate agent, my Jewish lawyer are making me. And like, you know, but you know those Jews. I feel like play that. And he agreed. Because <laughs> uh, we're like, we're brothers. Each other, blah, blah. So a title check, you know, $7,500 on the house. He owns $75,000 in the house. To the real estate taxes, the city of Philadelphia. Okay. So um, he worked out a program where he got amnesty. He was able to pay it all off in one go and four grand in a certain period of time and sold to me for $13,000. I go and meet the tenant, da, 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 da. I go and meet her. She hands me $550 in cash. She's paying me right away. I mean, my ROI in two years, if you want to talk ROI. I was making wow. $550 a month. She stayed for almost two years. Then she left and I've got someone else in there now, but, and, but so I have $800 and 550, it's like 1350 after taxes, wood or real estate, let's say I'm making like 1100 bucks, thousand maintenance, vacancies, everything, thousand dollars a month. Now it is on 3,500 shaka. That's half a salary. That is the 
power of cash flow. Now, if I was there, I'd be making millions of real estate or, you know what I mean? You know, equity loans and that, you're just starting. So when did you know it was time to go back? What? When did you know it was time to go back? So one of my passwords, I can't say exactly what it was, but my password was to reach a certain amount of cash flow by a certain amount of time. And I was looking for new real estate. I had no money, but I knew I, I, knew I was putting $1,000 a month away. So I knew in a year, I would, but I'm always looking. <laughs> and uh, just stay in the market. And then an opportunity to come work in Israel presented itself, and I took it. Uh, you have to know when, like, follow your goals and know when. This was to take me from here to there, and now I'm going off of this train, even though I said I'm staying to the end. Getting on the next train. So you you came to Israel with some cash flow coming from your cash flow, your zero property. cash debt, college debt, and so that. I mean, mm-hmm. wow. My parents have no money, and my in laws too. They're zero. They're they have nothing, and so that's how. I mean, so I love cash flow. So t- t- tell me just if this is so. Uh, this is, uh-huh. uh, I didn't when we started. I didn't think I was moving and go this way. So this is really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm learning a lot here. And by the way, I want to make sure to take a picture of us on the roof when the sun is going down, which is going to be pretty soon. Just give me a heads up. All right, cool. So I'm just putting that down for us, okay? So can you explain why Israel? What is, what is, is it because you wanted something from your father? Is it because your wife had a family here? Like, why did you want to come back to Israel? What brought you here in the first place? Your father left Israel, and now you want to go back? Like, what was just, I just want to get that piece straight. So everyone will give other answers. But the straight up answer is Zionism, yeah. right? And then there are all these other reasons. I mean, like, it's a good place for the family, like the weather, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I mean, How did you understand Zionism just as, as a 22 year old, a 23 year old? Like, what, was, what, was, what does that word mean? Because that means a lot to other people, many people. Sure. It was before then. In high school, you started to experience anti Semitism. You went to a public school? I went to, public, I went to private school through 10th grade. Then my okay. parents went, got divorced when I was 14. Was it a Jewish school or? Jewish, Jewish religious school. Oh, really? A religious school. I, I grew up. That's a whole other story, actually, which is huh. weird. Um, but I then went to public school in twelfth grade because you couldn't afford going to private school. And they got divorced, and there was things that internal politics or I don't. I don't. Know. I don't, I don't need to talk about whatever. That. The family, whatever. They sent me to public school. I didn't want to. And there's thirty five hundred kids. Failing school, they had a grad, like a graduation rate of like 36%. It's bad, very bad. Uh, they had metal detectors, this, you know, the full everything. Uh, bags, and I still remember the guy in line who said there'd be police officers with drug sniffing dogs saying, Keys, batteries, belt, what you got? Empty your pockets as everyone so we can move through the metal detectors quicker. This was the high school. I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? Anyway, um, uh, we're Zionism. Right, Zionism. So they had this stupid thing, Auditorium National Day, something, Nation Day, the current nation, I don't know, some dumb thing. And there was the people with this Palestinian flag, and these people were also made anti Semitic jokes to me in my physics class. Because you're publicly Jewish, people knew. I'm Jewish. My last name's Israel. It wasn't right. Really, it wasn't religious, though. Yeah. <laughs> kind of gives it away. Yeah. <laughs> And she'd say all these lies. She's like, oh, 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 you couldn't even, oh, but now you hear them now. But then it was, we're talking, I was, we're, we're talking, it was 20 years ago. Yeah. I was probably like, I was 15, 14, 15, 15? Right. Between 14 and 16, I was in public school. So, so like, uh, you know. 99, 2000. Right. Right. And, because uh, I graduated high school in 2000. And we're good at eighth grade in 2000. But whatever, it doesn't matter. 
And uh, so what happened was I go to, um, and then I started to recognize there was a correlation. She hates me because I'm Jewish, but she's blaming Israel, right? Which we see today from the Labour Party in the UK and increasingly the Democratic Party in the United States. And I just started to feel it. And then you start to like poke around and ask questions and look into things. And then I noticed everything that she said was absolute garbage and lies and straight up bigotry and racism and hatred. And, uh, and the greatest counter to that on campus, I used to fight that with science. It was me versus a bunch of basically terrorist supporters locked themselves in cages. This is what Jews do to Palestinians. This is their science. So I hand out these multicultural flyers and that, and then everyone thought that they were great. Like, this is not what we represent. I was like, chains, but the rest. It was just me, and they threatened to beat me up. They mocked me, like, we're going to follow you to your house. And, and there were serious anti-Semitic problems at Temple University. Um, very anti-Semitic school. Actually, I got in trouble by the dean, because um, I printed out, they had these whole marketing thing on, on billboards.philly. So it had been like, uh, let's just say like motivation, things that was like T-I-O-N, right? And, um, you know, inspiration, education, I don't remember what the words a long time ago, and the T was the temple logo, right? It was, yeah. it, was a, it was a cute marketing campaign. I thought it was pretty good, pretty successful. So then on Facebook, early days, you used to be able to make stickers. I don't know if you remember this. Okay. And put on people's walls. It was more like MySpace-ish. You had more custom things you could do on there. And so I made the sticker with the same cherry and white colors of temple, and it was anti-Semitism with the temple T. And then I printed them and put them all over campus. <laughs> <laughs> and the dean tracked me down, put them on everyone's Facebook wall. And I even had a word with me. Wow. <laughs> and like, I'm a, I, I walk towards the fire. Like, I like competition. Like, in a sense. Like, I love, I'm competitive, but like, no one like wants competition per se, but like, I don't run from it. Like, when I get rejected from that or I lose, I get those fuel on my fire. Right, it's my, it's what I burn. Um, so I love that, you know. But uh, so the anti-Semites fed me, they feed me, and they fed me to Aliyah, they fed me to what's the ultimate way that I can express my Zionism and defeat these bigots was to actually go and make Aliyah and make Israel a better place by being by succeeding. Interesting. Um, let, let me ask you one more question, then I want to take a picture because of, unless you'll tell me when we need to go up there. It's like, uh, no, right. You'll tell me when. I don't think you'll see the sun so well because of all the pollution. Oh, uh, smart. Okay, so this is interesting. So, this notion of a yeah, feeding, you know, the anti Semitism and rejection and failure feeding a fire, right? Competition. How do you see that playing out in business right now? So, I'm curious. Like, is um, that, I mean, how, does like, that, how does it affect your attitude towards? Uh, the deals you don't lose, don't win, or no setbacks. Has uh, it, is it similar? So, in, in Jordan Peterson's book, Problems for Life, and if you follow Jordan Peterson, you know, he, he jokes about him, he talks about lobsters. And if when the, when lobsters fight, I forget what, what the scientific, what the chemical is in their brain, when they win, they're much more likely to win the next fight. And if they lose, they're much more likely to lose. And it's, it's a chemical that uh, you give to help people with antidepressants. Serotonin? Yes, serotonin. And if you give them antidepressants, they're more likely to win after they lose. Much more. They'll win. It's a confidence thing. So I try not to get that negative serotonin. I try to block off that negative energy and the negative thoughts. And what I try to do is take the, ener- the negative energy and I put it in to positive energy sense right in, into my business so when let's say i have a setback in work 
the energy, I get like upset. I'll think about it for a few days. You know, my consciousness is very serious. And then I, I take that and I just say, I'm going to grow out. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use this for the better. So I see where I lose or if it's based on the competition, I go, go hit up one of theirs. Uh, it's not like, you know, so it's, you have to use that energy. I remember Matas Yahoo was once interviewed where he was, I remember he was playing at some big festival and a bunch of, just like earlier, a bunch of anti-Semites waving Palestinian flags because he's a Jew. <laughs> and he was interviewed about it afterwards and he said he took that energy, he changed his order of his songs, his first song he took, I don't remember what he did it was, he changed it because he wanted to use that energy to feed into his concert. So instead of taking that negative energy to push back, he used to push back. Yeah, it's almost like judo, right? You use my weight that I push on you against me. You take that momentum and you turn it back. So just like he used it in concert, you can use it in judo. I use it in personal life. Is that you do that? I remember. Can you just break that down a little bit? Like what does what has to go? What happens in your mind when you do that? I'll give you a simple example. Yeah, something please. happened to me when I was in college. So I used to smoke cigarettes. You smoke a lot. And I was having a conversation with my was father. Was there a reason why this was it just enjoyable or was it something Oh, else? man, I miss it. I've been like 12 years. Man, it's been 12 years. Oh, man, cigarettes are so enjoyable. Okay. I, I miss them. It's been 12 years. And I sometimes I smell secondhand smoke and most could learn, but I'm like, it's probably one of like the most enjoyable things in the world. Right. <laughs> um, and what happened is uh, I was trying to quit because I was coughing up blood for like the third time in five months. And uh, from smoking. And it kind of was like, uh, and uh, I was in college and my father, I was getting, I had some argument with my father, was really frustrated me on the phone. It wasn't anything serious. Maybe it was just a lack of communication. And I went to go reach for my cigarettes and then something came over me and I said, and I held it, I stared at my cigarettes. I remember they're Winston lights. And I was staring at them. I'm like, I want this cigarette. Of course, I enjoy it and all that, but I want this because I'm having this because of my father, because I had an argument with my dad. Pissing me off. I shouldn't because of that, right? I should have a cool down period, have the cigarette now. It's like, so I decided instead was I put on my sneakers and I went for a run. I ran two miles down to City Hall, back 2.2 miles. It was the first time I ever ran. And I channeled that energy and that anger and that upsetness and I just fucking ran. And so when you get this, even in like Shalombai, you're. It's like a, the Rocky. Rocky San Philadelphia, so you were just... Right, I just, I just ran down Broad Street. Right, Temple's on Broad Street, right. I ran down Broad Street, and then I ran back. So it was over four miles. And I circled. I was like, you know, uh, City Hall. And you, so you get, like, it's full of energy. Now, Kabbalah goes into this, but I'm not going to talk about Kabbalah because there's no way to talk, no place to talk about it. But you, there's energy in the world, right? And you need to take that energy and do something with it. And so you're going to get a lot of negative energy. People don't know how to deal with negative energy. Right. So, yeah. And this goes for anything. You can be fighting with your spouse. And you just, you just, there's a certain transformation of how you take that and put it into different, yeah. just move it to a different space. It's conscious. So, for example, if I'm fighting with my spouse and then instead of me fighting back, it's difficult to do. I try to be conscious on one thing. It's like, what can I learn? If I say this, how will she respond? So then I know for next time. So I take that energy into a learning opportunity instead of just arguing. And then I argue less. Then I know when to respond, how to respond, or most importantly, when not to respond. So, a few, few more quick 
quick things that came. That I know we haven't spoken much about Israel. <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is exactly no, this is this is exactly what needs to go, Brendan. This is exactly what needs to because um, you know this is exactly what I want to understand. Uh, in terms of, I, I wanted to circle back a little bit about this notion of how did you get? You, you mentioned you first got your first couple of clients. You were almost like an apprentice under someone who had an established business. You're working hourly for them as an employee or a contractor, or whatever. Uh-huh. And then you start bringing in clients. Was it just you going to networking events, or what was what was? I was bringing in old American clients, very small. I had some of my own from digital marketing and affiliate. I've been doing them since two thousand nine. So Xerox, you were doing digital marketing there. No, I was a senior business analyst. You were a business I was, analyst. I was te- uh, numbers, business, okay. right? So I was, a number, uh, I was analyzing data, but, um, but on the side, it was for small businesses. There's a matchmaker. There's like certain small businesses that I was doing their social media engagement. You know, Twitter, Facebook, and then the client told me to take out ads. And I understood I loved ads with just one client. This was good. What, did, I, what did you love about ads? Can you tell me this, this interesting notion of connection between numbers and social media and marketing? Can you, can you talk that through? Well, it's how I like ads. Is that you can actually manipulate the numbers. You can actually manipulate. You, you can control things. So I post a lot on LinkedIn. Love LinkedIn. And when I post it, I don't get to control how many views I get. But uh, you don't really get to control the metrics. I like being in control. With ads, I can see how things work and I can say, okay, I'm gonna bid more or optimize more for on desktop versus mobile. You can't do that on social for this demographic, for this age, or this gender. You can't do that on social. You can't do that in different things. It's more of a, you're kind of flying blind, you know what works, what doesn't work, what times of day are better to post. But on ads, because you're paying to play, you have a lot more control. And that's what I love about it. And what I love is you see all the data sets, like like about financial analysis, and you, I understand the relationship and I understand the psychology that I can make a change here and, and it might affect there. Interesting. So it, it, I, first of all, I think this is the first time I've heard somebody speak this way. This is really fascinating. So it's it, what you're loving about it is you're seeing it from a statistical standpoint, but you also you love the influence the control that you have in place through the ads. The psychology, I love the, the psychology. Because you see, you know, a, a friend of mine you know, would go on to be an investor. He, you know, he would urge me and encourage me. Um, he would say, you know, well, you need to fall in love with budgets. And my family is also in the background in mathematics. Both my grandmothers were economists, and my, my mother, you know, back in the mathematics, my father was a scientist, is a scientist. So, you know, mathematics is. I love math. It's a little spooky. You know, some people, I uh, kind of love like budgets and things. Like that. So he said to me, and I, I'll, this the most one of the most powerful piece of wisdom he shared with me. So you know, you know, budget is um, is telling the story of a company through numbers, mm-hmm. right? And I love story. I love storytelling. Mm-hmm. The idea of like looking how when you look at those statistics, you're actually looking at the story, right? You're this, there's this yeah. avatar that that's. Having a journey through your, your, your process, your funnel. Right. And in marketing, advertising, even more, you see the numbers and the data of demographics, of ages, of, of all kinds of things, of maybe of, of interests, of job titles, companies that work in the size of their companies, location. And so you can segment, personalize. You can, do, you can do a lot, but you can also understand, oh, this culture resonates to this ad message. This culture resonates to this ad message. Same product. Um, that's so powerful. Right? That's, I learned this. That's powerful. 
Tell, tell me a little bit about how this bridge to Israeli companies. Because you know, when I look at your niche, it's linked to others that sing out tech, Israeli, Israeli tech companies, it's your, it's your process. You're an American. Are you an American mentality? Was it hard for you to break into the Israeli market? For me, Were Israelis, you know, like distrustful of you or? Nah, contrary. First off, everything that's a weakness is actually strength. You know, the, those sort of job interviews, what's your greatest weakness? And you're supposed to kind of tie in something positive while, you know what I mean? When, while saying something negative about yourself. Everything is. Being an American, other, for others might not, might see it as you might imply, there's a challenge for me as an opportunity. What are Americans better at? We're better at customer service. Do Israelis know that we're better at customer service? I had, I had, I, I had an Israeli worker. Okay. Okay. And I called TD Bank support. I'm speaker because I was something else. And when the woman answered the phone and she goes, and I remember exactly what she said. And she was like, she was like, hi, this is Andrea from, from TD Bank. How can I make your day awesome today? And he was like, what the fuck is that? It was like you called and you press any numbers and just waited a minute and then someone answered and this person's like perky and like how can I make your day awesome like what's and it was like it was just like once they see it they get it and by the way that's what's going to save Israel in my opinion is a lot of let's say the secular types that once they let's say they go to Europe and you see how much food costs and then they come back and then they make Israel better because they understand we have problems with tariffs and all that, they figure it out. And it's the same thing for, I think, Anglos and Francos, they're gonna save Israel because they're like, it just shouldn't be this way. Because they have the influence from the first world that very few developing countries have, direct influence, people are moving there. Most, you know what I mean? So the more people are, if they're exposed to it, then they understand what I'm talking about. Or they just talk to me, they also get it. Because I'm personable and I really like them, I love business, and I love technology, and I love this stuff. So an American's an advantage to me. And I'm advertising to the States and Europe. And, I mean, English needs to be a mother tongue. Yeah. You know, so it's an opportunity. But the main thing really, if you want to make Aliyah, or if you're trying to make it in Aliyah in Israel, and we've discussed this, is the way to go is I want you to first read the book, uh, Speaking of Economists, by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Tipping Point. And what it's about is basically when things catch on, let's say Facebook, for example, it had to reach a certain amount of people to the point where it was out of control and it was just going to stick. And that's the tipping point. In Israel, the threshold for a tipping point is much sooner than in, to go into business than in any other market in the world. One is closed, two is basically a city state. It's greater Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, like 40 minute drive, right? It's a joke. It's just greater Tel Aviv, more or less. And everyone knows each other. Jewish geography, everyone knows each other. Everyone moves around. Everyone's born in one part of the country, from the other side of the country. You know, I'm born and raised in Philly. I never went out to California growing up. I never went out west. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, or the west, I never left. It's like, you can't, but Israel, you just, everyone can know each other. So you can reach that tipping point of enough people know you and people know your referrals on your, your recommendations and your website. 
that you can quickly reach a tipping point. You can, I can easily advertise to my entire target market in Israel for hundred bucks. It's a job. And I can get my message out so quickly. And that's unique to Israel. And especially within the technology where the money is and the budgets are, for funded tech companies, they're even more tight. Because these people that work at them, they jump from one to the other. So it's all about, I mean, you need to have a great reputation and you need to love people. So I'm making one-on-one connections with people, not as a business strategy, which I love it, but it turned out to be a great business strategy. I help people all the time for free, right? And I, I give them 30 minutes of my time because they can't afford me. You don't know how to do LinkedIn things on your own. I just show them. Send them the right resources, not the wrong ones. And like, and then, and then it comes back because everyone knows each other. They'll marketers talk to marketers and they'll just say, you LinkedIn, you need OL. And it could be the same, let's say, hypothetically, if you were in the food business and the technology company, they all talk to each other. They all go to the same meetups. They're in the same WhatsApp groups. It's only in Israel where you have a WhatsApp group for everyone using Marketo for this uh, software. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, you know it's CRM. And that, like it's a WhatsApp group, strangers in there. And people are asking and everyone knows each other. So having a good reputation is very important. Amazing. Right. I mean, last two questions that come up. Yeah, except that this is just like, let's shift a little bit towards specifically LinkedIn and what you do, right? Um, LinkedIn, if you would say a book or a resource, this be that you recommend to individuals to say this is the Bible of social media or digital marketing that you recommend to people or read this individual for resources you know, if you want to get into the space. Into which space? Specifically the digital marketing. I mean, I would say still Gary Vaynerchuk. He's got a little off the, off the derech. But following him is the best way he understands attention, getting attention through media. There's no one for LinkedIn. So it would be me. It's too rapidly changing that everyone has to give a course. And it's like, I write a course today, in three months it's not relevant. 40% of it's not relevant. Why is LinkedIn changing so quickly? Because they're still maturing. One of the reasons why I dominate on LinkedIn, I'm the biggest influencer in Israel on LinkedIn, is because I studied finance in the United States in 2004. My business teacher made me get on LinkedIn and made us apply and network on LinkedIn. It was just basically a place for jobs, like an HR place then. But I understood it. I'm American. I get LinkedIn. Israelis get Facebook. I don't get Facebook. In your mind, what is LinkedIn? Why are you so excited about LinkedIn? No cats, no kids, no politics personal development, improvement, storytelling. Just focused. It, but it's not there. vanity. I mean, Instagram's like, you know what I mean? Look how hot I am. Look how cool my life is, right? And then Facebook, it's like that plus something I'm angry about or something. I'm a little bit of politics. And look at this stuff, you know? And things like that. And pictures with your older parents that are on Facebook is on Instagram. They'll post it. Like, you know, the dumb Facebook groups. Like, I mean, there's nothing. It's not... It's not substance. I mean, think of how much time you spend on Instagram and Facebook. And if, if it was gone tomorrow, like you'd miss it for a day, two weeks later, you'd be fine. You wouldn't be missing. But I get a lot of growth following actual hashtags on LinkedIn, learning about productivity, some what other people are doing, following other professional tips and business tips and things like that to improve my life. You know what I mean? Of business challenges. No one, people air out their dirty laundry when it comes to business. Like, here are my challenges. I mean, you know what I mean? Personal development. They won't do it when it comes to their personal, or should they, when it comes to their personal life. So if I wanted to, let's say, hypothetically, have a better marriage and learn from you, people aren't going to focus on, 
here's how, um, you know what I mean, a fight yelling me, like, this is what we called each other or whatever. No one's going to talk about that on Facebook or anywhere. So there's no way to grow on it, on social media. In fact, social media is detrimental probably to your personal relationships. And stuff. But where you actually, the only area you can grow is personal development on LinkedIn. So the avenue of business. And, say it again? So the avenue of business. For business or personal development, correct. Right. And personal relationships, but not, let's say, family. Right. Or there are actually some forums, like anonymous forums online, you know, there's subreddits and things like that that are, that are also a great place to go for some of these things, too. Marriage. Entrepreneurs. You see your wife is very different. Yeah, she's the exact opposite. Can you talk about that for a second? Uh, I'm ugly, she's pretty. I'm sorry? I'm ugly, she's pretty. <laughs> uh, what makes it work? Hey, sorry, let's back that up. There's a, there's a compared to San Francisco, I mention this all the time, is that San Francisco has, on the average of any major city, it has more dogs than children right. in San Francisco. Uh, I would tell us people all the time, in San Francisco, what may be different is the fact that I have three kids under the age of eight. Right. right? So in, in Israel, just the culture of entrepreneurs having children is very different. And being married, having families, it seems to be something that's much more part of the, the culture here. Is that it? Would, it, would you agree that's correct? Or I'll correct? give you an example of why that's correct. Yes. Israelis asked me, why did you make Aliyah? Right, and I would say, I'm Zionist, and I'm whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I said, it's better raise a family here. Like, what do you mean? And I asked them this, from your house, walk 10 minutes in any direction, every direction. How many ganshas do we like playgrounds, do you hit? The answer is these four, five, everywhere in Israel. In America, there wasn't one. You get into a car and drive eight minutes, there's a million other kids and pedophiles. Well, they're everywhere, but like, it's like, it's a whole different thing. When they build Sorona in Tel Aviv, this big area, the tech area, right near the train and all these businesses and a big green area, there's like, there's one huge kids park and two other small parks, which are like two square blocks by two square blocks. It's not like massive. <laughs> and three playgrounds, one monster, one and two small ones, only in Israel. And that's how I say it's a better place to raise a family. It's more children oriented, more family oriented. It's not a religious or secular thing at all. It's cultural. Um, so what are some of the tools? It's a Jewish thing is really what it is. What are some of the <coughs> tools that you're focusing on been, as entrepreneurs that's been effective in your marriage? Um, marrying some, your wife's not involved in, in the business. She's not part of it. No, she does some very small admin stuff, some certain things I need to do, but generally speaking, she's not. No. So tell me, can you give a few things that work? That you feel like have been effective in your marriage is again is there a, is there a date night is there a, do you do you share with her what you do you know in the business and the finance but do you, how is she involved in what you do what has been the most effective do you share does she share the vision that you have for the business what you're trying to build so this is going to sound pretty negative no it's okay it's it just I don't share because. My vision is different from her. She doesn't have a business experience. She doesn't have it. So I say it. And if I were to say, I, you know, I taking a chance and a big cut to our parnassage, she'd already be like, whoa, okay, I'm going to hire some really good talent. It's going to hurt, but hopefully in six months it will pay back in spades. She thinks it's retarded. She'll, she'll say, why you spend your money on that? When we need money on this. I don't say anything. I leave her 100% out of it. Who's in charge of the budget? Do you guys have a budget? We have a loose budget, and we actually said we need to get down. Now that we finished building our house, it's back down to have a real budget. We have a loose budget. And is there an agreement around money in the, in the family? No, there never is. 
If anyone says yes, they're lying. What do you mean by that? Look, you bring two people together, they're not going to agree on any one topic. Someone's going to be a little bit more, let's say politics, one's going to be more right than the other, one's going to be more left than the other, okay? So one person's going to be in a better shape, one's going to be in worse shape. Someone's going to have, no one's two of the same, so you're always going to have disagreements. No one that says, oh, we're all lined up and we're synced, it means that you're actually not communicating. You're communicating and you're having friction and you're having friction means you're communicating because you're different. I have very different views from most people, as you can tell. So, I mean, so, I mean, we don't agree, but we have, like, kind of rules. She gives me full scope and room for me to run my business, and she's my credit card. <laughs> so, it's on a there for bed. She doesn't ask me if I'm working at that. doesn't ask me, whatever it is. If I'm going, I have no question what she has. So, she doesn't spend a lot of money, just a lot of money on organic food, <laughs> convenient food. She's not a spender other, other than that. And was it difficult for you to marry someone who was so different from you besides looks? Okay. I had no idea. I had no idea who I was or who she was. I was 24, she was 24. Wow. We got married 24, 21. Yeah. No idea, no idea. We had the same values and I was super attracted to her. And that was enough. And the same values, what, what were those? I mean, I don't know. Zionism, family, or kind of. That's like, that's, that's it. Does, does, that's, does, it. Does, that's it. That's it. That's it. It doesn't go that deep because the deeper you go, like you don't even know. It's like, okay, maybe we disagree more on education. She's more Montessori. I'm a little more type A, leading one relative to the other. You'll never agree on anything. We're a little more like, of course, you'll have disagreements. You don't know them. So you, have, so you have children, really. You don't know. You won't know. You won't know. No one understands what your disagreements are. You don't know. Just like I said, you can only learn in business from challenges and mistakes. You can't learn from other people's success stories, generally speaking. The same thing is you can't learn about yourself until you've conflict, right? The Isha Kenegdo, as the Torah says. Until someone's pushing at you, like, I grow the most when I lose a client. I do an exit with you, and I find out why, and then I adapt because I, okay, I wasn't good enough here, or let's say I didn't, whatever, whatever it was, where did it lack, or what more were they looking for? My agency doesn't have, my agency doesn't have, uh, I lost a client because we don't do marketing automation. They outgrew me. Got two rounds of funding while we were with them. Everything was great. Growing recommendation. But I couldn't provide that. I couldn't provide that service. So they outgrew me. And I asked, and I interviewed two people in the business and their company to find out. And okay, what did that mean? And how much were we going to pay? When did you find out you needed it? I'm trying to see if I got any hints. And now I'm using that to now grow into marketing automation, seeing how I can start using that as a service. So, But so I would have never gotten into marketing automation if I didn't lose the client for... Not providing marketing. So you always do the next thing you find. Of course. I mean, it's, people think it's weird. Why do people think it's weird? This is huge. Yeah. Well, I, I do the same thing with my clients. I mean, I, I, I mean, like, okay. I think people want to end in a bad relationship. Do you know what people say? Like, let's say, like, um, it's human nature. If you were like a good friend when you're younger, not now, more immature, probably more like you and a spouse, your spouse was going away, or you were going away for a few days or something. Like a week, and there's something natural that makes it easier to say goodbye by leaving on bad terms. Subconscious, you have to fight. And so, when you say goodbye and they hire you, they kind of want it to be distant, they don't want you to be close, they don't want it's uncomfortable. There's like a cognitive dissonance, like we're stopped working together from one person or the other, but why, we're, but we're still gonna be friends and comment on each other's compose or whatever it is. So, it's like, it's I just don't like when. In my opinion, when you start working with someone, it's not about not burning bridges. You have to strengthen that bridge. 
you do in addition to text interviews or something else that you do? Strengthen that bridge. I mean, I'd follow up with them. I mark birthdays in my calendar sometimes if it's if it's necessary. Usually, mark and then it comes around. It's no reason to. It's <laughs> weird, desperate. But you know, um, but no, I mean, I'll engage with them on social media and LinkedIn, and that's it. And like, and that's enough. And if I think of them, I'll tag them or I'll send them a message. You know what I mean? If I think of something that's related, I'll send them like, hey, or this or that. Last last question, brother. How do you um, figure out your pricing? So how do you determine pricing for your services? Okay, this is, is a great question because this is one of the things that actually changed how much money I And Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this. There's a video, you should find it. It's, I try to find it, it's hard to title. You can't really search I'll try to link it too. If you can find it, you gotta search. You, you search where it doesn't come up. It's like a small snippet and I, like a part of like a speak and then it changed my He said, he was talking about his story. He said, he was hired for his first speaking gig for money. They said, okay, so, you know, you're going to speak for, you're going to speak for an hour, blah, blah, blah. How much, how much do you want? Right. And I don't know the exact numbers, but he said, oh, so he goes, uh, $5,000. Like, okay, great. He's like, shit, I could ask for more. They would have given it to me. And then a week before they were going through everything with him and the other people and making sure everything's thing. like, all right, yeah, 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 maybe speaking for an hour, speaking for an hour. And he goes, whoa, wait a minute. I thought it was 30 minutes. He was like, he knew it was an hour. He was like, was like, what do you mean? And I was like, no, 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 Gary, it's an hour. We have it for an hour. You for an hour. I'm like, I quote you for half hour. He's like, well, how much is an hour? He's like, $10,000. He's like, okay, fine. He's like, fuck, I could have charged more. <laughs> and then so he goes, he says, the lesson is that keep raising your pricing until the market tells you no. So I keep raising my pricing. And what happened was I raised my price for a new client. I, I grandfathered. I don't, I don't even this on, my, on current clients. Um, is that once I just like raise my prices 40%, it's like, okay, I'm going to raise it for my next, for the next three people that pitch me, I'm raising it 40% and see what happens. So it closed and suddenly I felt this immense guilt that I wasn't serving them enough. And so it forced me to get better at my trade and provide better service. And I got better. And then I felt good about charging that. And I charged 20% more for the next 20% more. And I got better. And I started taking classes that I wouldn't have otherwise online to get better. That's our skills, hard to test things like that. I wouldn't have done putting the extra hours because I felt guilty charging X amount. Thinking I wasn't worth that, or the service isn't worth it. But I am worth it because they pay me for it and they stay with me. And because I do the work and I go and I learn and try to grow out of it. So the truth is, when it comes to service, just keep raising the price until 10 people are able to take And that's when you know maybe it's not to take a little break. Yeah, that's kind of how I apply to it. But you don't raise prices on your current customers. Yeah. They grandfather them and sell a service. Right. Well, what I do now is, um, well, I mean, I, right. I'm not going to go into the intricacies of pricing in my industry and want to confuse people, but yes, but there is a way that like, if they don't grow, then they won't, but I have fired clients because they won't, they haven't told them if you don't spend this, but in the next three, four months, like if you're not going to start growing your accounts and getting all the results you requested, we'll reach all of our benchmarks and everything. If you're not ready to grow and scale, this is a place you can scale. It's everyone's dream. So how can I scale? You can scale them digital. And if they don't... Because you're doing a percentage of ads. That's, that's uh, yeah, it's, it's a receipt in a sense, yeah. correct. But if they're ROI positive on it, they throw more money. So 20% more, you'll make X. So another 10 grand. Tomorrow, you'll make 120 grand, let's just say, right? In a month, two months. Let's just say, right? Like, but they don't. Okay. And if they don't, then I just tell them they have a certain amount of time. And if they don't, then wait until... Uh, is it one more? As many as you want. I'm not going anywhere. Because it's... 
But instead of paying you back when you retire, you get in seven years of the wow. payment. So you don't have to wait till you're 65. And it's less taxes. Mm-hmm. Love it. Okay. Well, so basically, think of it as an IRA, but you get in seven years, not, not your six. But it forces people to save, essentially. It's an incentive. It's, yeah. I mean, people do it, and you got to be like, oh, shit, I my car in seven years. Uh, you know, because they would take a couple hundred bucks a month and just grow it. Um, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing, really. Anyway, um, yeah, because taxes, bitch. But I would like to give some advice for once you're making, if you're self employed or in business or whatever, or sales or whatever it is, once you're doing okay, there's two things don't be cheap on. You guess what I'm going to say? No, please tell me. An accountant and a lawyer. You always want to overpay. Just like when I mentioned I felt guilty when I was being overpaid when I charged, I felt guilty, and therefore I tried to do what else I can do. I overpay my accountant and my lawyer. You never ask for a discount. Ever say what when I say how much will it cost? Because I make it sound like you know how much do I owe you? What's your time worth? Like you need to make it worthwhile. I got a haircut yesterday. All right, cost me sixty shekels. All right, hair and face, and then when I was done, I gave him and this is the last two times. Same guy, I gave him ten shekels. Then asking him ten shekels, tip, which is a lot. That's right. They don't tip, but if they do, it was like two, three, five. And he goes, "Were you happy with the haircut?" I asked me. I said it was okay. But because I gave him that tip, the reason why I gave him that tip is because I gave it two times ago, right? This is the third time. Two times ago, I weren't going for a while. It's hard to get in these, but they're very busy, very good. Is that he squeezed, he kind of squeezed me in, and I gave him a 10 shekel tip, and I said, Here you go. It's very generous. And I go, It's because you squeezed me in and you respect my time. And so now I can call any day I want and squeeze me in to let me know when around the schedule. If you show up, you can wait for like two hours, three hours. But it'll squeeze me in and tell them to come a certain time and it won't wait more than 10 minutes. And that 10 shekels buys me two hours of sitting and waiting because instead of a waiting room. Uh, how do you see that relate to the lawyer and accountant? Money talks. In a sense, right? We work for money. Like it, 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 you're buying time. It's two things. One, you can never be legally protected enough. Can you, can you share that anyway? I mean, let's... Clearly, clearly there's some mistakes you've made here that influence that. Those well, look, you can say like, you know, people say like, oh, you pay for insurance, you pay for insurance, right? Say homeowner insurance, flood, flood insurance, and you have flooded, and then, okay, great, are you going to get paid? You only find out when shit hits the fan. The same thing is true when it comes to a lawyer. You don't know how good that employee contract was only on the rare occasion that let's say it ends up, you know what I mean? With a real estate contract or any contract, whatever it is, until, God forbid, let's say we had to go to court. Are you able to share with me an example of how that affected your business or no? No. Got it. But you're speaking from personal experience that you know Yes, but this is very important. We're talking about specific employment contracts, and I'm not going to I'm not going to go into discussion. Just like you need to make sure legally, like legal protection is is important. The two things you, you can't control is the IRS, the government, accounting, how much money they take out of your pocket, and the and go to court. You it's in the hands of a judge and another lawyer, and then I can control. I can fully own all my relationship with my clients, with my family. With my friends, with my mistakes, how can I do better? But you lose control when it comes to the government. That's whether it's the courts or the taxman. The thing about the accountant is that, and I often compare my services to that of an accountant, is that when people ask me, oh, you're expensive, and I have that reputation, which I'm happy to have, is often I tell them is that you pay your accountant a certain amount of money, significant. He doesn't just save you the time. In the States, it's more relevant when you file your own taxes here. You don't really. You're, you're, by law, if your accountant has to do it, you can't do it yourself. 
saves you the time if you violate it yourself. And he saves you more money on taxes than you pay him or her. When you advertise a market with me, I'm saving you the time of you doing it. And I'm going to make you more money than you're paying me. It's a fact. And that's why having a good accountant or also good digital advertiser is important. I'm really grateful that you were able to be very honest about your experience. Is there anything in perspective, Oli, or who have businesses in the States or potentially moving here or looking to start a business here? Just is there any final words of advice or places, resources to look at that you would recommend? No. Don't look at resources. Don't make the mistake I did in analysis paralysis. To go back to the story when I got to argue with my dad and he, I wanted a cigarette. I was holding the Winston's in my hand and I just decided to go for a run. If you want to make Aliyah, just do it. If you feel like you're an entrepreneur and you make it, just do it. You're going to regret not doing it. It's better you do and you fail. When you do it, go all in. It's better to fail hard, fail fast, and get back up again and try something else than you can go back and be an employee or whatever it is. You can always come and make Aliyah and you can always move back. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in it. There's more shame in someone who wanted to, I know many people, many baby boomers, their whole life they wanted to make Aliyah, whatever it is, and they didn't. The saddest story, uh, that was always a sweet story. I think it was absolutely sad. A friend of mine, her mom, was like 80 and made Aliyah. It was her life dream. She made Aliyah when she was 80. And I think that's pathetic. It was her life dream. But further, she triggered and she tweeted she was 80. So if you want to do something, stop reading. Stop listening to this. Fuck off social media, except LinkedIn, and get to work and just do it. Make micro goals and do it. And if anyone wants to follow me, you can reach out to me, Yoel Israel on LinkedIn, or email me at Yoel, Y-O-E-L, at wadidigital.com, W-A-D-I digital.com.